So thank you. This is a tremendous honor uh, to be here, and um, I'm going to help you indulge me with the uh, open up in a word of prayer. Dave's prayer just now was one of the best I've ever heard, and I feel like the sermon was really just given just in that prayer. So, uh, but if you'll indulge me, um, uh, just start with a word of prayer. Dear God, you're awesome. I lift you up on this day. This church body lifts you up. Please help me not screw this up. Amen. I did not grow up in the Presbyterian church. In fact, I was raised in the Southern Baptist church. Um, my entire life I was baptized in the Southern Baptist church. And um, till I started dating this young woman who I later married, um, started dating her when I was 16. And we started going to a Methodist church. And we went through the Methodist church all the way through the University of Florida uh, during, our, during our time there. We got married in the Methodist church. And it turned out, I learned later in life that one of my ancestors was the very first Methodist pastor in the state of Florida pre-statehood. Uh, so my family has a rich history in both the Southern Baptist Church and the, and the Methodist Church. But my entire life, one of my favorite relatives, I have a lot of great mentors in my family uh, that, are, that are related to me, uh, is uh, my uncle Ray Cameron, who is the senior pastor for Lake Placid Presbyterian Church down in Highlands County. And he's been at that church now for over 30 years and is just an icon in that community and it's special in my life. But he would particularly appreciate that I'm here because he has been nudging me into the ministry my entire life in a very gentle, careful way. And even though I have spoken at dozens and dozens of churches, it's usually just for two minutes to thank them for the food drive that they just completed. Um, this is the first time I've ever been asked to give a sermon and maybe the last time I've ever been asked to give a sermon. But the fact that it's at a Presbyterian church is kind of special because of my Uncle Ray, and I think you would appreciate it very much. Um, I am going to uh, use my phone for some of my notes. I hope that doesn't offend anybody. Uh, it's how I usually do it when I speak. And I'm not checking the score of the Manchester United Leicester game, which is in its 62nd minute right now. And it's, um, so uh, if, you, if you trust that that's the case. Um, so. What I want to do is um, start off by with a with a passage, um, and then uh, kind of come into talking to you a little bit about about homelessness as well. So I'm going to start with uh, Matthew seven, verses thirteen and fourteen, and I'm just going to read uh, to you. Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in there, because straight is the gate. And narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, what's interesting is what I read is going to be a little bit different than what was on the screen because there's different versions of the Bible, as you all know. And that actually kind of helps my, uh, my, the point I want to try to make today in, in some way. So I'm going to try to read this verse to you again. And because this is one of the verses in the Bible that really is always sort of not confounded me, but I sort of passed over it because it, it, it reads strange. But um, for purposes of what I wanted to talk about today, it actually is, is perfect. So I'm going to read it again, because the only way to really explain it is to, to really just try to read it again. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in there. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads 
unto life and few there be that find it. I really like the book of Matthew. I kind of have always thought in my own way, and I think maybe one of my old Sunday school teachers said this and it just kind of stuck with me, that in some ways it feels like Jesus was uh, dictating to Matthew in real time, that he was really right there and there as a scribe saying, no, no, say it this way. The poetry of the New Testament, I think is so um, reflective in the book of Matthew more than just about any other. And poetry is a really great way to try to convey a message, but sometimes it can get confusing. And so let me try to explain what I think Jesus is saying here in the best way that I can by talking a little bit about nations as opposed to people. So if you think about it this way, if God were to judge our nation in a set of polls against all other nations in history, ask yourself, what would his judgment be? Government based on populism, which is what we have, or you could say democracy, is quite different from the governments of the Old Testament. It's as if God has given us no excuse as a society, since to a greater extent than ever in human history, we determine our own national destiny. But Matthew, in this verse that I read, is talking about not our national identity or our national destiny, not even really our destiny as humanity, but your and yours and my personal destiny, not that of broader groupings of people. A person's eternal destiny has never depended on how his country is doing. Jesus implies that if everyone is going along with a single system of faith, chances are good that this system will be fatally flawed. And this is a pretty sobering thought, but Jesus' teaching is validated by a simple comparison of conventional religious wisdom against what the Bible actually teaches. The narrow way can be found only through a knowledge of God's word. So it's our job to find it. So whether you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church or the Methodist Church or the Presbyterian Church or any set of faith, Christian or otherwise, the idea if you're following a single line of faith with no access to any other set of information, chances are there's a flaw in that particular system. Now, I'm not criticizing any one denomination, but the idea is right here in Jesus' teachings that we should challenge conventional wisdom. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse six says, then dare to do what is right regardless of the majority. See, Jesus stood alone as did the great men and women of faith throughout history. He was going against the grain at the time and what Judaism at the time was, was preaching against the traditions of thousands of years of his own ancestors. So we try as best we can in following Jesus's word to challenge conventional wisdom. How many of you have ever watched the television show, Ted Lasso? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty good. So which animal that we now know from watching that show has a 10 second memory? Goldfish. A goldfish, thank you, thank you. Just pity. How many of you have ever visited the Empire State Building before in your life, but gone to the top of the Empire State Building? Some of you may have heard when you went there, like I did, that they tell you, if you drop a penny off the top of the Empire State Building and hit somebody on the ground, it would kill them because it's such a tall building, right? 
Or you've heard the adage, because Orlando used to be the lightning capital of the world. Where I grew up in Tampa, the hockey team is named the lightning because Tampa used to be the lightning capital of the world. It's actually now in Louisiana. But we think of this, the, the adage, the conventional wisdom, that lightning never strikes twice in the same place. Right? Or how many of you have ever raised children? Raise your hand. We all know that you don't want to feed children a lot of sugar because they're going to get really hyperactive, right? That's just not a good idea. Now, what if I told you that goldfish don't have a 10-second memory? Science shows that their memories can last for weeks and months at a time. Or that if you drop a penny off the Empire State Building, it'd have the impact on your skull the same as if you dropped it from 10 feet above because physics doesn't work that way. Acceleration happens in a vacuum, it will continue to accelerate, but not in a vacuum. Wind resistance will keep it at a certain pace and it won't make any dent in your head. Or what if I told you that lightning strikes twice in the same place all the time? That's why we have lightning rods. <laughs> or if I told you that science has disproven time and time and time again that sugar actually makes children hyperactive. Yet we still believe the conventional wisdom because that's just part of who we are as a society. There's only so much RAM in our heads for so much information. And so when we hear it often enough, we tend to believe it often enough. What if I were to tell you that the conventional wisdom in our country and globally is that homelessness is a product of mental illness? How many of you have ever heard or thought that, right? And homelessness is a product of addiction or that there's a reason why we have more homeless adults in warm weather climates, because it's easier for people to be homeless in a community like Orlando or Los Angeles than it would be, say, Minneapolis or Seattle. And that's why you have higher rates of homelessness in warm weather cities. And of course, that's the conventional wisdom. And because I'm sharing it with you now, it's not a big leap to tell you that none of those things are true, actually. What is true is that we kind of believe what we want to believe because it sounds like it makes sense and we really don't want to take the time to think otherwise. And for a lot of things in life, does it really matter if we know that a goldfish doesn't really have a 10 second memory or that a penny dropped off the Empire State Building is not going to have you be charged for second degree murder? It's not really important, but some things rise to the level of importance that you ought to be aware of. And this church had taken a survey of the church body and asked what things are important to you. And one of the things that rose to the top was homelessness, which is why I'm here today. I was asked to come and speak to you to talk a little bit about the realities of homelessness. Now, mental illness is a major part of homelessness. 5% of Americans are diagnosed with an SMI or severe mental illness. But within the population of homeless adults, it's estimated that about 40% of people experiencing homelessness are struggling with, an, with a severe mental illness. Addiction's similar. The rates of addiction among people experiencing homelessness are higher than that of the rest of the country. But the problem with the logic is it's not a direct path. And the reason I can share that with you is because of science. We've, we've proved that. But to kind of help break the conventional wisdom, I would ask you to think about it this way. If mental illness 
were the main reason for homelessness, then why are 99% of the people in this country struggling with mental illness and at least 5% of the people in this room housed? If addiction is the main reason for, for people experiencing homelessness, then why are 99% of the people struggling with an alcohol or drug addiction housed? It's not a direct path. It's not the same everywhere. You see, there is no accepted common thread for why someone becomes homeless, or what we like to say is why someone's experiencing homelessness. There is one common thread that, in my experience, that I've been able to learn and draw from, and this is not scientifically proven. This is me just being uh, anecdotal in my experience, but I believe this, and that's the common thread of support. Do we have any nuclear engineers in the room? Anybody that studied nuclear engineering? Before I continue with this particular analogy, I'd like to ask that question. Okay. So you've heard of Chernobyl, you've heard of Fukushima. So you generally have an understanding that uh, nuclear power plants do have some downsides to them in certain tragic scenarios. But with nuclear power plants, they have fail safes. Because if one thing goes wrong, that's some pretty nasty stuff you're dealing with. And it can really have some major, major consequences to an entire population of people for generations. So they have fail-safe after fail-safe after fail-safe. In fact, the reason the entire island of Japan is not a complete and empty shell right now is that even after the tsunami hit the island, some of the fail-safes held. Otherwise, there would be nobody on that island right now. Homelessness is kind of like a nuclear meltdown. It's not when one thing goes wrong, it's when 18 things go wrong. And there was no fail safe, there was no support to back somebody up. The thing that I've learned from the people that we work with every day, far too many people that we work with every day, the common thread is usually that they didn't have family that they could rely on to help them when the first crisis hit or the second crisis, or the third. And that family is either dead and gone, or they've burned all the bridges with that family for some other reason and just can't reach out to them, or they're too prideful to reach out to that family. They just won't do it. And so when that job loss happens, or the illness happens, or divorce, or when they struggle with mental illness or an addiction, there was nothing to fall back on. There was nothing to protect them from falling further and further and further. Homelessness is a unique condition in our society because it's not anywhere close to the biggest epidemic that we have as a country. In fact, only about five-tenths of one percent of the population of this country will be experiencing homelessness tonight. That pales in comparison to other epidemics like the opioid epidemic or mental illness, or alcoholism. But in our lifetime, as Americans, 5% of us, the same percentage that will struggle with a severe mental illness, will likely experience homelessness for at least one time in their life. 5% of Americans will be homeless at least one night in their life. But when you have such a small percentage of people experiencing this, you think, why, don't, why do we give so much attention to it? Part of the reason is because we see it. 
Here at Maitland Prez, we see people sleeping on the campus. How many of you have seen adults sleeping on the campus here at Maitland Presbyterian? Yeah, I've seen it. When I came here the first time, I saw people sleeping here, one person. Part of it is because it's there and out there in front of us because we see people holding cardboard signs, but that's panhandling. That's not homelessness. For every one person you see holding a cardboard sign, there are 500 that are sleeping in their cars or on the sidewalk somewhere or in a tent or in a week-to-week hotel room. There's so much more than what we see. But I think the reason that we think about homelessness in this way instead of maybe even some other epidemics on a grander scale is because we look at it as the worst case scenario. And we all think that in the back of our minds, that could happen to me. That's possible it could happen to me. Statistically, that's not likely. But we still, when we see it, we think that could happen to me. And so we pay attention to the problem. We grieve for the people who are struggling with it. But we also look at it as a problem that somebody else needs to solve. It's a community problem. So our elected officials, they need to find a way to solve it. They need to improve something about the community such that this doesn't become an epidemic. And in part, that's true, because some of the solutions are not things that you or I can do. But we can contribute and help those empower those in leadership positions to understand the things that need to be done in a greater way. So the conventional wisdom with homelessness is that people experiencing homelessness are going to do so in warmer weather climates. And before I started this type of work, to be honest with you, I used to think that too. There's a reason why Los Angeles has the highest per capita homeless population in the country, because it's easier to be homeless in Los Angeles than it would be in Minneapolis. But research has been done on this particular topic time and time again, and it's found that there is a reason why you have different rates of homelessness in different cities. And it actually is related to weather, but not the way you think it is. It's not because of the warm climates that people go somewhere to be homeless. So we think of homelessness uh, as people who are transient. We actually call them transients. But in every study done in every major city in the United States, what they found is that 90% of the people experiencing homelessness were housed in that community before they became homeless meaning they're from that community. 90% of the people that are on the streets in Central Florida tonight were in a house in Central Florida before they became homeless. Not that just the majority, 90% or greater. greater. That means it's our problem. It's a homegrown problem. Now, yes, some people that are sleeping on the streets tonight may be born somewhere else. They may have even found their way to this particular community, but that happens less than 10% of the time in every community in the United States. So then why would a community like Chicago and Philadelphia and Boston and Seattle and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Phoenix and Orlando and Tampa and Miami, why would they have different rates of homelessness all over the United States? What makes those communities different? Is it because they have more or less shelters? Is it because they have more or less of a mental illness problem in that community? Is it because they have more people struggling with addiction in that community? What is the contributing factor. And science has has now, without a doubt, given us the reason as to why that is the case. And I I brought this book because it's one of the most recent studies released by the University of Washington, a professor named Greg Colburn. 
and his studies about structural factors that explain U.S. patterns for homelessness. And he turned it into a book because so many people were requesting copies of his study. I was one of them. And he, he named the book, Homelessness is a Housing Problem, which should give you an idea of what the rest of what I'm going to talk about is about. So what Dr. Coburn did is he studied 39 communities around the United States, and he determined that there were a number of different variables that he wanted to study. And he looked at things like addiction and mental illness, and he looked at things like divorce rates and the number of shelter beds in a community. He looked at all these things. But what he learned was that the issue that was the variable that tied the difference between communities and their rates of homelessness was all about housing. So the reason why Los Angeles has four times the per capita homeless population than does Orlando is because for the last 20 years, they've had a very small inventory of affordable housing. Let me restate that another way. In Florida, for every thousand residents in the state, 13 of us will experience homelessness this year. In California, for every thousand residents, 49 will experience homelessness. Two warm weather climates, why the distinction? It's because Los Angeles has had this issue of not having enough affordable housing now for 20 years. And the other communities that have high per capita rates of homelessness, they've shown the exact same thing. They've shown that they just aren't building enough affordable housing. And why is that? Well, it goes back to the weather, but again, not for the reasons you think. People since World War II in our country have been retiring to the South and West as just part of a migration in this society. And as a result, developers have been building more homes for those that are retiring and moving and relocating to those warmer climates. But when they build those homes, they're not building affordable housing for people who are making lower incomes. They're building a little bit more pricey housing for people that are moving there and have the capacity to do that. And in the ensuing result is that we have fewer opportunities for people to live that are making lower incomes. Now, why would I be sharing all of this with you here in Maitland, Florida? It's because this community is on the precipice of an explosion in homelessness, and I'll tell you why. One is that we have the lowest median income of any of the top 50 major cities in the United States, and I've had that distinction now for 24 out of the last 25 years, median income meaning half our community is earning under $32,000 a year, and there is no other community in the top 50 where that is the case. Second, and more recent, is that Orlando as a metro area has ranked seventh from the bottom, third from the bottom, and at the bottom in terms of our affordable housing inventory, meaning we just passed Los Angeles as the least affordable housing market in the United States. And as a result of the science, we can tell you definitively that if this continues for the next couple of years, you're going to see an explosion of homelessness in our society. So it is up to our elected leaders, our business leaders to try to find ways to do this, but they won't be able to do that unless they have the political capital or the political will to do it, which means challenging the conventional wisdom that people are homeless because they choose to do that. They're homeless because of mental illness. They're homeless because of addiction. They're homeless because the weather is going to be 90 degrees this week in Orlando at the last week of February. That's not the reason. It's just an affordable housing issue. 
So what can you do about it? What can you do to be a part of the solution in this particular instance? Well, I would encourage you to do three things. And I wrote them down so I wouldn't forget on my phone. First, I would encourage you to volunteer. You have lots of opportunities to volunteer through the missions committee for this church that Sandy runs. You can volunteer anywhere in this community, but when you volunteer, let me encourage you to make it a lifelong commitment. And I don't mean go out and volunteer every day for the rest of your life. What I mean is pick something and stick with it. No matter what your age or your ability level, find something that you are passionate about, get involved with that, whether it's arts or animal welfare or education or social services, find something. And if, even if you only do it once a year, Keep doing it once a year for the rest of your life because that lifelong commitment to it is what grows communities. It's what improves communities, not going one time. I would rather somebody come out for an hour once a year for the next 10 years than to give me 10 hours tomorrow and never come again because we can build off of that. So volunteerism is, is, is step one. Second, stay informed. If we're not engaged as a community, we're not able to challenge the conventional wisdom. When my wife's grandmother passed away a number of years ago, we went and emptied out her um, assisted living facility and I helped carry her, her television, not a flat screen, but one of the traditional small television sets. And I noticed something interesting on it and that the Fox News emblem was burned into the bottom of the screen when it was turned off. And I asked one of the orderlies there, I said, is this weird? He goes, no, this is every TV here. This is down in Naples, Florida, which meant she had that on full time all the time. Now, whether you are getting your information from Fox or MSNBC or CNN or anything, it doesn't matter. The idea that you're only getting your information from one source all the time is not allowing you to challenge conventional wisdom because you're not putting information from multiple different sources in your head. But if that's not good enough for you, then I would challenge you to do this. And it's not just because I have friends who go here who work for this organization, but you need to subscribe to the Orlando Sentinel. Whether you agree with anything they say or do or what or not, it is the only local journalism enterprise left in this community. And when it goes away, and it will go away, then anybody in power can do anything they want and be completely unchecked. So you need to stay informed. And last, I encourage you to do what we started to talk about here, and that is challenge conventional wisdom. When you volunteer and you learn about what's going on in your community, when you stay informed and you're becoming more broad, more well-rounded human being, talk about it, talk about it, talk to other people about it, whatever you wanna talk about. I'm not telling you what to talk about. I'm not telling you how to talk about it. But when you talk about it, talk about facts, not opinion. Talk about the facts and challenge conventional wisdom with the facts. Because that, in my opinion, is the only way we grow as a community in the long run. So I didn't come and say, hey, here's what you can do. Do a food drive or a clothing drive or give me money or any of those things. What I want you to do is get out in the community and be engaged at whatever level you can stay informed as a community and talk about the information that you're gathering so that you can challenge conventional wisdom. And I hope you all will do so in the spirit in which Jesus intended it. Like he said in Matthew.
bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you're awesome. Thank you for allowing me this opportunity to share in front of the fine folks here in Maitland. Thank you for the invitation. This is the honor of a lifetime to be able to do this. Please lift up this church body as we lift you up. Please lift up the world around us, those who are struggling, those who are not informed, those who are hurting all over our planet. Please be with them, offer them some comfort and allow us to find a way to be part of that comfort at some point in our lives. And it's in your fantastic name that we pray, amen.